Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, David, overall. Although I do have a, a mystery ailment, I, I seem to have been bitten and envenomed by some sort of creature. I'm, I'm forced to conclude uh, a spider, although I didn't see any spiders. And where I live is, you know, really pretty much insect free. It's also been very dry. Uh, so there just aren't mosquitoes. It's it's very strange for me because I've lived a, a great portion of my life in parts of the world where the insect life is simply intense. You know, whether we're talking about mosquitoes that carry malaria or ferocious bush flies or spiders like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I've seen um, one of the, the bird catching spiders in the jungle. You know, they, they are big orb spinners and the webs are sufficiently large and durable enough to actually stop and contain small songbirds, you know, in the rainforest. Jesus. So I don't know. I, I but I'm 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 pleased to report that I don't think amputation is going to be in order. I've 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 gone for antibiotic cream, uh, hot washcloths, and I made a very foul smelling uh, tropically influenced poultice drawing mm. on some of my uh, knowledge from the past. And um that's now worked. So I think it's, it's calmed down to the point where it only looks, you know, like a bullet wound now, not like a infestation of some uh, counter biological force. So that's the news here. So things are going Cronenbergian for you over there. Um, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. I mean, I, I made the mistake of looking at the, uh, the thing with my magnifying glass. And oh, no. that oh, was no. really contraindicated. Uh, certainly <laughs> before lunchtime, that was not a good move at all. Uh, oh, no. man. How about um, supplements and teas? Well, you know, I, I do, I, I hit the vitamins and stuff pretty hard. Um, I, uh, I'm hoping this poultice will, will, will have calmed things down. Uh, I, I've cleaned it off now because it's not uh, well. It's it's a little bit odiferous, um, and it took me a while in my mortar and pestle to make. So I might do one of those again tomorrow if it's if it hasn't calmed down even a bit more fully. But um, it, it's an unpleasant looking. It's just on the inside of my left knee. And I'm very grateful it isn't farther up my thigh. That's yeah. that's kind of where I'm at. Be grateful for little things, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. If it was if it was further up, we probably wouldn't be recording this evening because you'd be at the hospital. Yeah, I think so. I think I'd be forced to. Do, you know, there are so, certain things that you just can't ignore. You don't, you don't take the risk. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh well, well, I am certainly sorry to hear that. Um, Nothing quite like that is going on here, although um, it's just about that time in baby. It land. is. I'm so excited uh, for you guys. What's yeah. the report? Well, the report is that uh, listeners uh, who are hearing this now, we are recording this episode and the next episode uh, so that I can have some baby time because we are just about to head to the hospital here in a few days for an induction. So... 
Monday is the day we're recording this on Friday. So uh, yeah, it's it's here, man. It's here. I recently went to a place called the uh, Botanic. It's a Botanica, right? It's called the Botanica uh, de San Cipriano. Uh, and it's up in the southwest of Oklahoma City, which is highly uh, Mexican, Hispanic, um, lots of taquerias and tire shops, and a few, uh, you know, witch stores, right? So we went in. It's a lovely little shop. It's got, you know, a lot of three-foot-high Santa Muerte statues lining the the thing, and Jesus on the cross, and St. Cyprian and St. Michael, all these great statues and incenses and you know, energy pyramids and things of that. So my house now smells of uh, Palo Santo and I got this nice smelling frankincense and this nice smelling myrrh here. So we are uh, fully cleansing the the place for the new for the new child, which is good. Wow, fantastic. And what's the grandmother report? You've got both of them nearby, right? Correct. Yeah. So my mother is hysterical. She calls me every day just for updates and you know she's a <laughs> she's a school teacher and they're currently going through their their test testing season right mid-april and she's she's letting me know you know if, if you need me she's like i'll i'll leave and i'm like mom you number one you can't leave because you know she's a special education teacher there's nobody else who's going to be able to to do what she does so i tell her you know calm down it's going to be fine um but she is like a like a junkie telling herself that she can stay off the junk she's like well, okay i can i can wait i can wait you know if if gus is here <laughs> on tuesday i can wait until friday and i'm like okay sure thing but uh, but rios's mother is um going to come up on monday while we're in the hospital and take care of the dog kalua and uh sort of keep house for us for a bit while we're there and then she'll be there when we get back and at that point it's just a a, a tag team hopefully not a war but a, a tag team situation <laughs> between the mother and the mother-in-law for uh for infant time but you know i honestly could not be more grateful for that i um today i had some pretty extreme nerves about the situation you know i mean so far everything is you know going fine uh there's nothing really to to be alarmed about besides the fact that childbirth is one of the most massively physical and psychologically intense events that a, a woman and then her her partner i think to a lesser extent but still still very prominently can go through in their lives i think so yeah i'm just taking a lot of deep breaths today and reminding myself to to relax you know it look it really is intense i mean when i uh worked in the hospital i started off as a basic orderly and uh, got my paramedic training um and i worked in the er and uh one of i made friends with one of the the older surgeons who was ex-army great guy uh he was a classic old doctor he smoked four packs of pall malls a day and was just a beautiful surgeon he just he mm -hmm. was just part of an older <laughs> world but uh -huh. he would invite me into uh to see autopsies and uh, I, I, I watched many of them and, you know, it, it was a little confronting at first, but the first live birth I saw just completely blew me away. I mean, it was just, you know, 
it really is a miracle. It, it's a cliche, but it's it's a cliche that remains just so valid and true. You know, mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. is a remarkable thing. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see why uh, it, it's been, you know, such a great challenge for, for humanity to, to manage that in, in, in safe conditions. And the whole mystery and a kind of occult nature of the midwifery thing. I mean, I really get why um, I've known a couple of midwives in my life and I really liked them as people, as, as souls, because I I could, you know, get with the magic that what they were doing and it's women's magic. It really is. I think it's, it's um, I I totally get that idea, but it's very hard to think of that whole thing in, in a purely, Western medical science frame for me, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. it is too Mm -hmm. mysterious and and too magical to, to purely be uh, contained within that grid. But, but thank, you know, God for um, the mechanisms of safety, you know, that that exists now. Totally, totally. Our doctor has been great. And there is, there's so much abundance of caution. And as a you know, as the, as the dad, and I'm, and I know as Rios, as the mother can attest to, uh, we appreciate pretty much all of it. You know, I mean, if the doctor says, well, just, you know, out of an abundance of caution, we're going to, you know, do this test. We say, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Please, Please have an abundance of caution. But, you know, uh, on the magic thing, then this is neither here nor there, but I thought that this was fun. So while I was in the store, so botanicas are, have candles, just for days, right? Just rows and rows of, of magic candles that you can light in order, you know, they have road openers, they have petitions to, you know, San Benito and San, uh, uh, San Miguel and, you know, pretty much anything you could think of. And it came to me while you were, you know, talking about like the magic stuff, because we were looking very specifically for candles related to childbirth, right? And there weren't any specific ones, although the gentleman who worked there helped us out and, and found some other stuff. But while I was looking, I saw some candles that were just hilarious, right? There's a candle and uh, and it has a woman on it, right? And the woman is holding uh, some puppeteer strings, right? And there's there's a man at the end of it, right? And <laughs> in, Sp- in Spanish, it says, you know, uh, control him, Right. And, uh, and then there's another one that has a bunch of police officers on it, and it's a candle for keeping the cops away and stuff like that. But I love that kind of uh, very practical magic, right? It's just sort of everyday uh, banal stuff, right? And I, I really thought that that store in particular was kind of like a it's kind of like a, like a Walgreens almost, or a, you know, like a corner store or a dollar store or something that just has, you know, toilet brushes and toilet paper and Cheetos and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But for, but for magic needs, you know, here's here's, here's one to keep your boyfriend. Here's one to, you know, steal, steal a man away from another woman. Here's uh you know, here's one for, uh, you know, for your dog to make sure that your dog listens to you. There's all sorts of Ways I get that totally. That that was exactly the last time I was in Africa, just around the corner from where I lived. There was a store just like, and it was just so fantastic to go in because it smelled so bizarre and amazing, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. it was it was actually really well organized. It was a beautiful apothecary sort of, but it but it 
the the practical goals behind the roots and herbs and and all of the concoctions were exactly what you're saying really basic things like you know if you're jealous of you know uh someone else's lover well you know this is this will make the, this will mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, start mm-hmm. sending them bad luck or if you mm-hmm. need you know more immune system build up or if you need an erection or if you need to get a job or you know, it's all this right. wonderful sort of get aligned with you know the reality of human need it was fantastic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's cool yeah it, it was very cool it was very cool but um yeah i think we can get into it today if uh, if you're ready, I I, I was wondering. Um, I, I just we wanted one one other thing for you to share yeah. with our listeners because I I think it's really cool. Uh, uh-huh. I know that that um, up through uh, the pregnancy that you've been reading to Rios, but also reading to to Gus. And yes. I thought it would be cool just for you to mention what you've been reading to listeners because you know it is true. There's absolutely no question about it, that parents who read to kids give their children one of the great life head starts that you could possibly get. And I think it was cool that you started before he's even born. What kind of stuff were you, were you, were you reading? Oh, there's all sorts of different stuff. So there are the classics, like where the wild things are, um, which I have to do a lot of description with because a lot of those pages are just, just illustration. Right. Uh, Good Night Moon is one. We have a collection of Sesame Street books about, uh, you know, nap time and, and bubbles and things like that. There's a book about hedgehogs, a book about foxes. Um, and then there's some some pretty cool, some interesting ones. So when I go to half price books, I I go to the children's section now and I try to find the most interesting, weird looking ones. Right. So I got him one called The Town on the Turtle which is about a turtle that has the whole world on its back, you know, kind of like some, it's got this great kind of impressionistic art style. It's probably actually my personal favorite of the kids books that I have. And then there's one that I haven't quite uh, decided if I'm going to read yet, but I had to buy it because it was so bizarre. It's called um, Hiroshima no Tagake, I believe is what it's called. And it's a children's book about the atom bomb. Uh, written oh, wow. in, written, yeah, written in Japan, and it's about it's about the burst of light, right? And the burst of light, and how it took all these people away. And I was reading that, and I thought, wow, this is this is very very heavy. And I'm not sure this makes for light reading. So I haven't read that one to him yet. But um, you know, and then there's you know, there's, of course, there's Dr. Seuss, and there's one called the uh, you know, guess how much I love you, I love you forever. Um, his bookshelf is becoming. Uh, impressive although not as impressive as i would like it to be i want his you know bookshelf to kind of rival my own so he'll be uh he'll be spoiled in that respect which is how my mother spoiled me when we used to go to the giant in uh in virginia they would have a spin rack of course with stephen king novels and you know robin cook and stuff like that but they'd also have a spin rack of children's books and i wasn't ever allowed to get uh candy or soda or anything like that, but I could pick one of those books out of the spin racks. So that's a that's something that I'll pass on to onto him. Uh, I don't really think they have that per se anymore, but I think that the library and half price books are going to be kind of uh, you know Gus and Dad's 
hangout spots, right? Where you can have a dollar, a dollar amount, right? We can do $20 per trip or something like that and just pick out what he wants because um, it made my life what it is, you know? I mean, reading was the most important thing. Yeah, and there's still so much great stuff from the past. Not that there isn't good stuff emerging, but I, I think that the political correctness issues is really resonating very hard within children's books. And, you know, some of the classics, I, I don't think you can get a better book than Go Dog Go, you know? I mean, That's I just, a great one. I yeah. just think that I look at that. Yeah. I look at those pictures and I my, I just smile, you know, mm-hmm. I just instantly feel good. And yeah. at some point I, I'm, I'm using it for the, the big novel that I'm working on when I, and I, I'll get to it when I finish the, the textbook, but it's a beautiful collection of um, folk tales from Papua New Guinea called the turtle and the Island. And um, I, it's very hard to find. I mean, I got it there. Um, but I'll, I'll send that to you when I, when I finally finished with it, it has some beautiful and beautiful stories. And I mean, a lot of them are origin myths, you know, how the turtle got her shell, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there are mm-hmm. a lot of other, um, stories within it that are just absolutely lovely for any age. And, and it happens to be a folktale collection that is hard to come by. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I would I'll, like to do, yeah, I would like to do that. And I would like to do when he gets a bit older, the real kind of Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. Right. And I have a collection called, it's called Feast of Something. I'll have to find it, but it's a collection of uh, Jewish folktales as well. And that's also in kind of an older age bracket. But I thought, you know, maybe when he got a little bit older, could start reading him some of those spooky, gory ones. Yeah, uh, that yeah. I, that I think have a lot of, I think they, they have a lot of uh, a worth to them, you know? And uh, that's something that I'll have to navigate as he grows up. But, you know, I think... I think kids are ready for a lot more uh, dramatically speaking than we might give them give them credit for. But that's I mean, that's so far in the future at this point that, you know, maybe not worth thinking too much about. But no, well, that's cool. That's cool. It's cool to have a a, a plan that way to have that in the back of one's mind. All Mm -hmm. right. Well, that sounds like a good report. Um, Yeah. Congratulations (laughs) to all three of you. Yeah. Thanks. You're on the go. Thank you. Thank you. Well, on that note, what are we going to talk about today, officially? <laughs> okay. Um, I just wanted to round off uh, our last sort of series about the continuum of progress idea, and particularly our discussion about progress in social terms. Uh, one of our listeners wanted me to flesh out a thought that I'd had, and I'll, I'll do it very quickly. Um, basically, my, my, my thinking is that our current Uh, social obsession with issues such as race, gender, and sexual orientation have a lot to do with our fear of confronting the intimate, uh, private, individual, and to some extent secret worlds of psychic experience, and and therefore the the possibility of mental illness, uh, and our inability to face the species-wide challenges and the need for indeed interspecies thinking and collaboration in order to address the environmental and you know potential extinction crises that that confront us and i think that's a good way to 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 end that investigation of progress that we've moved from the mythic religious through the technological and biological through the cultural down to a pretty mundane constant media exposure of, of sociality. And I don't think that's 
by accident. I think that we default to the social and the social media level of, of discourse in a sense because we can't handle uh, the, the deeper private um, interior psychic worlds. And on the other side, the larger cultural, global, uh, humanist, species-wide thinking that, that we need to engage with. And that may be an interesting way to look at our topic coming up, which uh, the frame uh, and working title is The Diet of Illusion. And I think that what we intend to do is look at the notion of, of media. Um, what a strange word that has become, you know, a medium. We've now just completely take that, you know, for granted. And, and where our engagement with this, it's almost an alternative reality, you know? I, that's the way I think of it. When I returned to, to reside in America in, in 2012, the, I was out on the road a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I, I had several books that I was doing readings. I was interested in revisiting places I, I knew from the past. I wanted to see some new parts of America. Uh, I was doing a lot of um, uh, just personal and professional photography. So I was traveling a lot. And every time I, I got out of my house and was on the road or in the airport or wherever, uh, I kept noticing how different my physical reality and interchanges with people were relative mm -hmm. to how the mainstream media phrased things. And it just seemed like I was traveling between totally different worlds. And I, I think that we talked about how technology has kind of uh, taken on a life of its own. Edward T. Hall uses the term extensions you know, our technology has an evolutionary path unto itself. And now I think we can say the same of the whole world of media, you know, mm -hmm. mainstream media, both news and commercial entertainment. So what do you think about that as a topic to investigate over a couple of episodes? I think that's great. I think that's great. I think that perhaps a good place to start with that, and you mentioned Edward T. Hall and his notion of extensions, which, you know, brings to mind Marshall McLuhan and, you know, his sort of definition of what media is. So Marshall McLuhan, McLuhan is famous for his quote, you know, the medium is the message. And I think that we can unpack that a little bit, specifically with his definition of what exactly media is. So I think basically what McLuhan says in his book, which is called Understanding Media, he calls the subtitle of understanding media is actually extensions of man. So that's an important connection there. Um, it's basically that any sort of consequence of the ingesting of a certain medium, it, it doesn't have so much to do with what is being sort of beamed into your head message wise, but is a necessary product of the medium itself. And there's this example that I've heard that I thought was really great about a monkey using a stick to dig in a hole for ants. You've probably, you know, seen that on the Discovery Channel or something. They'll sort of pull the stick out and, you know, eat the ants off of the stick. But when the monkey is using that stick, that's actually media. That's an extension 
like an extended appendage of the monkey itself. But the consequence of the monkey using that stick to go into the hole to pull ants out is that some of the other monkey's senses are dulled. For example, the monkey is leaving itself open to attack from a predator, particularly from behind, because its senses have kind of been been dulled. And so what McLuhan is kind of extrapolating from that when it comes to things like radio and television, and now the internet, is that these act as extensions, but also a bit of a, um, uh, a cri- having a crippling effect on some of our other faculties. So I know that's kind of a lot to sort of start out with, but I sort of I lit up when I heard extension, so I figured I would go there first. No, I think that's a good place to start, and then I think we can backtrack to historically how we've gotten there. I think there are a couple of of, of names that come up instantly in, in, in this context. You know, Freud talked about this issue in terms of man is a prosthetic god, you know, mm-hmm. and, and looked at extensions in terms of prostheses, you know, extensions of our senses, which then, you know, in a sense, do in fact debilitate us because we depend, become dependent upon them. And uh, that makes me think of, of a wonderful uh, quotation from Emerson that um, I used in one of my books, actually, uh, Zanesville, I think. Man is a god in ruins. And I think Emerson is an interesting touchstone because he and Thoreau and Melville in the mid-19th century were really sensing the, the incredible power of the mass communications medium and how that was affecting consciousness on an individual level, on a community level, and on the, the societal level. For the, for the first time in history, the word society gets used in a very different context than what it had been used historically. Up until the rise of, of the when mass communications began to really take hold, society meant really high society. You know, it meant mm-hmm. uh, the nobility, it meant the, the aristocracy, it meant people who meant something. But suddenly we begin to use that term in a much more general sense of the public, you know, people. People are talking about this, you know, that kind of, of sense of society. Um and I think that's an interesting sort of, of, of transition. Um, but we, it took a while for the idea of a medium and therefore media to really take hold. I don't know if people are aware of that. The first uh, regular newspaper in America was the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser. And it actually dates back to 1784, uh, which is a long time. Uh, the first independent paper in any kind was actually produced by um, Ben Franklin's older brother, uh, hmm. and it was it came out, it started in 1721. So it it was a long time before the distribution networks really began to get any kind of regular news vehicle out to people in remote areas. I mean, let's let's face it, America was was very rural based. It was an agricultural uh, economy. You know, it, 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 the idea of people being connected in that medium sense really took another hundred years to really dig in. And in the meantime, we had subscription services in terms of magazines and how books were 
passed around. We had the first women's book clubs, uh, which, you know, that gets lost in terms of a lot of gender studies programs. But I think there's a fantastic uh, world of discovery. There's, There's thousands of what were called sentimental novels that are no longer known by anyone outside a few specialist fields. But it really took some time for that to to percolate through the culture. And Mm -hmm. we, you know, jumping forward in time, we've had to adjust to some enormous transitions very, very quickly. But I I think one of the the ways to maybe um, start discussing the idea of medium and media is to look at a fundamental distinction between apparent content and advertising. And we have an idea, I think, that um, advertising is kind of a a supplement, a necessary supplement, which is, um, or what would be another way to put it, an unfortunate side effect of content. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has never, ever been true. Uh, In fact, the whole reason that any kind of objectivity, any attempted objectivity emerged in what we would today call journalism happened because the publications sought advertising revenue and they therefore were obligated to deal with multiple sides of issues and to strive for some apparent form of objectivity, which has always been a little bit, you know, questionable, and I think has become enormously questionable in our time. But I I think people don't realize that advertising and the need to to please a range of advertisers is the only reason that any kind of code of conduct for journalism and publications ever emerged at all. Hmm. Now, are we talking about specifically America here? Well, As far as as far as this goes, uh, certainly very specifically America, absolutely. But I think okay. you could absolutely say the same holds true in the UK, and to some extent, the, the, I mean, they're really the whole European development is, is a little bit more complicated because of of just the age, the history you know, of the continent right. and the different right. cultures. But right. by by the mid nineteenth century, America is is without really attempting to do so, is is leading trends. I, I think mm-hmm. that there, certainly the UK has its own particular flavor. Um, I mean, there's no, it's not because of Rupert Murdoch that, that because the, the, the UK has lots of tabloids. He didn't found those. I mean, he's from Australia. He bought those. That, that kind of, of approach to uh, newspapers is a very English, British thing. Um, and, and France has its own very, you know, different worlds. Same with Italy, same with Germany. So there are some real, real big differences. But on the other hand, um, I mean, what, what made the American uh, trajectory so interesting is that we're talking about a huge land mass. We're talking about very distinct worlds of rural versus metro that Europe just didn't have that kind of ground to cover, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. took took their time frame in America basically because of geography and demographics. Right. 
that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that America, especially in the past century, at least, has innovated in ways that other places have therefore emulated. You know, I knew we were going to talk about this, so I did a little bit of research. You want to hear my sort of rough timeline as far as cable news goes? I think that would um, be helpful. I think that would be helpful because okay. then we can we can always jump back to to ground where that came out of from uh, you know a more mainstream three network background. I mean, there are, right. there are some people who are listeners who remember that I grew up with that. Um, but I think yeah, let, let let's jump around because that's the in the nature of of the idea of media. And I think that uh, McLuhan is a good reference point there because he was always doing that. And I think we need to jump back to some of his thoughts because um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he was mm-hmm. a real you know pioneer of of analyzing media and its effect. So hit us with the timeline. Okay, cool. So here's a very rough timeline that I assembled. Um, I have the first uh, nightly televised news show in the year 1940. It was hosted by Lowell Thomas, uh, and it was on NBC out of New York City. And Lowell Thomas had been a nightly newscaster on the radio. And at this point in 1940, the it was only being broadcast uh, within New York City, right? But after that, up through uh, uh, through World War II, up into the Vietnam War, obviously, you know, these nightly newscasts then moved on to places like CBS and ABC uh, until we get to, uh, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, June of 1980. You know what happened in June of 1980? Uh, I have a few ideas. I have a few it ideas. Was the, it was the launch of CNN. 